When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. I'm John Ploss, and our RTB virtual guest today is the poet and naturalist Elizabeth Bradfield, who's the author of several amazing books, including Toward Antarctica, Once Removed, Approaching Ice, Interpretive Work, and a recent collaborative work called Theorem. She's my colleague, my amazing colleague at Brandeis University in English and Creative Writing, and she's also founder and editor-in-chief of Broadsided Press. And for the past 20-some years, she has also worked as a naturalist and guide. So Liz, hello. And hi. <laughs> hi. Thank you so much for doing this from your um, cozy Cape Cod eerie. Oh, really my pleasure. It. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, so Liz, you know, I, I should say this is another installment of our Books in Dark Times series, which asks what books we turn to for guidance and sustenance and engagement at moments like these. And the series as a whole takes this inspiration from Hannah Arendt's idea in Men in Dark Times that, you know, even at the darkest moments, you can find sustenance from the thought that things, you know, have been better and will be better in the future. And just a reminder that the question we're asking you today, we're also asking our listeners as well. So we want you to think about what sustains and engages you, what pushes and prods you, and maybe you know what makes you want to get out there and do things in the world again. So Liz, can I just start off with some of those general questions I started you with in advance, like you know what what books give you comfort and why, comfort or joy and why? Well, I find myself pretty scattered right now. <laughs> so I usually, I love to dive into novels, but I don't have the mind for it right now. So I'm turning, not unsurprisingly, to, to poetry. Um, I actually, scatter, skipping through a bunch of different books, different little things in the news are sending me to different books on my shelves. You know, Ivan Bolin's death a couple days ago sent me back to look at all of her her work was just, just so phenomenal. And the resonance of a poem of hers, like quarantine in this moment, I mean, it's just, it's such a heartbreakingly beautiful poem. Can we say more? I'm so glad you mentioned her because I was just reading her obituary this morning and realizing even though I teach Irish literature, I don't know as much about her as I should. So tell us about, can you tell us about quarantine? Yeah, I mean, actually I have it 
Yeah. Here. Amazing. Um, you know, Ivan, she taught at Stanford for a long, long time. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to study with her when I was there. And she is just the, uh, she is the most passionate advocate for poetry's power and the most uncompromising critic and reader of poems. She's both incredibly generous and incredibly hard-eyed and always, always incredibly certain, which really baffles me as a person. But this poem of hers is from her book Against Love Poetry. And, and she introduces it. There's so many great videos of her online reading this poem and talking about it. But she talks about how she discovered the instance for this poem, which was by reading a text in which the story of a woman stepping out from her house and finding two people frozen to death, huddled together nearby. Um, and it made, it made Ivan uh, come to this poem and to think about the devastating history of the famines in the late 1800s in Ireland. Mm. Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season of the worst year of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking. They were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. He lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that west and west and north until at nightfall, under freezing stars, they arrived. In the morning, they were both found dead of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history but her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for the inexact praise and the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only time for this merciless inventory. Their death together in the winter of 1847, also what they suffered, how they lived, and what there is between a man and woman, and in which darkness it can best be proved. Wow, Liz, that's amazing. Ooh, almost broke down crying in the middle of reading that. <laughs> what does the word proved mean there in that final, that final word? I've been baking a lot, so I think about proofing, and uh, is, that, is it that sense, being proved, tested, attested? Yeah, I mean, in the way that, uh, tested, I think, right? I mean, yeah. if you were, sick and starving and huddled together outside to have, <laughs> you know, to have the last act of your life. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, it's making me cry. No, no, um, it's an amazing such generosity, You know, to be one in which, in times of trouble, to have love be your final gesture. Uh, ooh, it's just, I think that's what she means. Yeah, that's incredible. When we talk about Irish literature, we talk a lot about the troubles and how the troubles is a word for one time in Ireland, but it could be a word for like many yeah. decades in Ireland. Like there's a yeah. lot of troubles there. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I, lo I love the way Yvonne Boland, you know, she brings together the personal details of lives, and but she doesn't ignore the historic political context that right. shaped them. And so there's bridging of it's not quite confessional, although that's in some of her poems, but this, this awareness of how the personal is politicized or how politics shapes the personal. And, and it's done in such a beautiful and natural way. It's not forced at all in her poems, but again and again, she finds the right moment to turn that, turn that screw and let us really examine how these things work 
with each other, really. Do you know this woman, Maeve Binchy? I'm just reading Circle of Friends. Yeah, yeah. she's amazing. And she's so, I mean, she's such a, in a way, like, I mean, I say light, but not in the sense of lightweight. Like she's so enjoyable and kind of soap opera-y and engaged in a melodramatic set of plots. But you always know who's Protestant and who's Catholic, who comes from the great house, who comes from down the village. When there's, a, when there's a house that doesn't quite belong to the village or to the great house, you know who lives there and why their story is different. You know, that, yeah. that yeah. sense of provincial possibility of locating people and relationship to one another very easily. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think about just listening to that and thinking about it, that I think it's one of the things that I love about living where I do, living out here on the Cape in Truro, in Provincetown. And I feel like I'm able to map, I'm able to map that much more acutely than I would be in a larger community. You know what I mean? The person who's checking out my groceries is also an amazing artist. And I know that, you know, because the town is small or who has a summer home and how are they buying the influence for the, mm, you know what I mean? The, all of those power dynamics and the services and disservices of a community feel uh, really visible. Yeah. So, do are, so Liz, are you a fan of any of these books that kind of poetry that like Winesburg, Ohio, or something, or, or Spoon River anthology rather, like poems that just kind of like summon up a whole set of people and their relationship to one another? Yeah. I mean, I love a project book. You know, a book yeah. of poems that I always read books of poems, start to finish, like. As, as one would a novel. And I, I enjoy that unfolding. And I, I love a book that has a real focus, whether it's a community or, you know, a set of obsessions or a historic figure. Uh, so I do. And I think what I like about things like Spoon River Anthology is, is that fractal view of a community. Yeah. Um, just having these flashes of people and, and the gaps between those flashes being something that I get to map a little bit. Um, that's left for me to fill in. I think that's part of what I enjoy about that that type of collection too. Yeah. Wait, can you say more, Liz, about other project books? Because like I was thinking, you made me think of the Louise Gluck book about Persephone and Demeter, which I, Aulis, is that what it's called? I can't remember. Yeah, so that doesn't sound like you're a fan of that. Or that's not one that does it for you. But I, that book I, really worked for me as a project book. No, I think, you know, I think when I think of Louise Gluck, I always go to the Wild Iris. Wild Iris, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. of, her, of her collections. But honestly, I haven't read her as deeply as some other poets. But, you know, I'm thinking of, thinking right now of Brian Tear's book, uh, Doomstead Days, that I just finished. It's, it's a new book. And Brian Tear is just an amazing writer and thinker. And a lot of the poems in Doomstead Days, he's engaging with climate change. But he's looking at the way the body's frailties are mapped onto the landscape's frailties. He looks yep. at the first public um, disaster he witnessed, which was an oil spill in San Francisco Bay. Uh, he talks about his own illness and um, the, the pharmaceuticals in his body entering into the world. And just this, this mix of the permeability of the self and the world. And a lot of his poems are composed on these long walks when we go through high school, we get taught about like the different forms of poetry, lyric poetry, epic poetry, dramatic poetry. Is that length point you're making, like are all of the poems you're talking about, would you call them lyric? Or do you think there's a way in which the longer poem kicks into a different genre or 
you know, I guess I don't know if people even write epic poetry nowadays, but. Well, sure. You think about Derek Walcott's Omeros. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking oh. about that. That's and, a, It's not and, just a project book, right? That is uh, a poem. Yeah. It's a poem. And yeah. Merwin's The Folding Cliffs. I mean, that's oh, amazing. Looking at early contact Hawaii and the devastation of leprosy <laughs> on the islands. The Folding Cliffs. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's an amazing book. Yeah. But so Wait, those are deliberately epic sort of book length poems, right? But then yeah. you're talking about, I don't know, lyric piled on lyric or something? Yeah, I think often that happens. And I think, you know, in, when I was in graduate school, one of my teachers was Linda McCarriston, and she talked a lot about the lyric impulse versus the bardic impulse. So not thinking of lyric as a short thing necessarily, but the lyric as the self reflecting upon the self, yeah. <laughs> whether it's in resonance with a cloud or whatever. And the bardic being um, the self speaking outward, an Irish tradition, um, the poet speaking to power for the people, and the lyric being this moment of self-reflection. And I think, I think there are many lyric poems in some of these book-length projects, like, say, Natasha Trethaway's book, Belloc's Ophelia, in which she looks at, she looks at this photographer in New Orleans who early days of photography would go to the brothels in New Orleans and particularly the brothels of mixed race prostitutes and document them. And so she brings a lyric perspective into those moments and she gives one of the models that he photographed her own voice in those poems, this woman named Ophelia. So it's Bellux, Ophelia is the title. But, but overall it becomes a bardic impulse, which I think is really interesting because through these lyric moments, these moments of reflection, as they accumulate, you realize that they're engaging with how were these experiences shaped and what are the political realities for these figures as well. And so I think they're kind of doing both, you know? Yeah. So, so let's, that, to say more about the Bardic, like, I feel like there's a distinction Oh yeah, isn't it Yeats's distinction? We make of a quarrel with others politics, we make of our quarrel with ourselves poetry. So yeah. you're actually kind of, this is a different from that Yeats distinction, right? Cause you're saying there's a bardic impulse that is poetic, but is actually could be a quarrel with others. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be naval contemplation. One of the things I'm really turning to as a reader these days is not even narrative nonfiction, but field guides like oh field guides yeah, yeah. The guide to the nests eggs and nestlings of north american birds i yeah. could read that all day long you know <laughs> to say more about that like what does it do to do for you is it is it a substitute is it a does it put you in the put you out there does it well it gives me this little satisfying bump of feeling that i'm learning something which is fun instead of just sitting around um and, but also I think it's partly cause it's spring too, right? And migratory birds are coming through and I just start thinking about there's so much that I don't know about so much. So yeah. hear a bird, look up the bird, read about the nest. I, I just, I find, I find the, the, you know what I think it is? I think also the, the form and the structure of a natural history guide where you have these categories and they're each kind of answered in detail. Like there's this, in this book, there's the description of the nest, the breeding season, the eggs, the incubation, the nesting period. These, and they they vary, but they're the same. And I, I find it really beautiful and 
fascinating as a genre as well as just the information that's in there you know yeah i totally hear you and i have these sibley guides and i try to read them that way sometimes and it's somehow i'm just not programmed that way like i read them i can read one section and think it's great but i don't know like when i was in the when i was lucky enough to go to the galapagos that you know then the books just came alive for me and i was reading them like the second i got back on the boat i would just start reading them but it it was because it was it was overdetermined, you know, like the world yeah. gave me the reference and you're clearly able to bring the world in to that taxonomy. I don't know if it's that different though, really, because it's not like a, it's the first thing I turn to in the morning, but as soon as I come back inside from having been outside, there's something that I see, like pick up a shell on the beach. Do I really know what this is? Let me go look it up. And I, I love... I love the field guide as an initial point of reference because I also love to see what's on either side. You know what I mean? And yeah. looking stuff up online is just not as satisfying as these books, which, you know, the, they blow my mind too for just how did we figure some of that stuff out? Like how did someone get into that nest cavity and document this building? How did someone have the time or even the imagination to watch an ant crawling across the yard and envision the complexity of that life. Do you know a book called The Love of Insects by, maybe his name is Eisner or Esner? Mm -hmm. um, not Lauren Isley, but it's like that. He's a friend of E.O. Wilson's and he's like an insect. He is an expert. I mean, I think he's just generally an insect guy, but, but he's had like a 50 year career and he's interested in insect camouflage and weaponry yeah. basically like so he's interested in how a fecal shield works on a dung, dung beetle and how different kinds of miming work like how much energy do you have to give up to look a little bit like a bee how much you, energy do you have to give up to look a lot like a bee if you're a non-stinging insect yeah. oh and that's it's just amazing to me how we can know those things i know especially animals that go through radically different life stages. Like I was thinking oh, about yeah. the life stages of, of echinoderms the other day. So starfish, urchins, sand dollars, and <laughs> to figure that out in the ocean that you have this tiny planktonic creature that looks a little bit like a space capsule. And then, and then the later form is growing inside of it and it turns itself inside out like a sock and becomes an urchin. I mean, it's how, yeah. how did anyone I don't know. It's... I know, and we make fun of people for calling barnacle geese barnacle geese. I'm like, you know, listen, geese coming out of barnacles is actually not as crazy as some of the things that actually happen. Like that one happened to be wrong, but you know. totally true. It's, by the way, it's Thomas Eisner for Love of Insects. You should check it out. Even the just the images are unbelievable. I, I wonder now. if that guy is still alive. He's mm. just, you know, he figured out like how hot the spray is that comes out of beetles, like it's 227 degrees or whatever. Oh my God. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah. Just, I yeah. love that. Me too. Yeah. So I think lots of people listening will want to know, you know, since we often talk about childhood books here, so people will want to know kind of like, it's like the childhood of the poet question. Like when you were a kid, did poetry turn you on? Do you remember early books that did turn you on? I, I love to read. I, I was super obsessed with all the series books, any ones I could get my hands on, right? Yeah. A book and series, you know, Nancy Drew or the Boxcar Children, or for me, it was Trixie Belden. It was kind of this 
she was a schoolgirl Seamus, you know, she was a young detective and kind of a tomboy and she oh, was wow. doing this stuff. I, I loved Trixie Belden. Trixie um, Velvet? Belden. Wow. Belden. Amazing. Yeah, she was, she was great. But I didn't know, I, you know, we had child's, children's garden of verse and we had some Shel Silverstein around the house, but poetry wasn't the thing for me then. I will say that I still love, love reading um, young adult novels. I actually just read, that's a, that's a book that I still can fall into in, in these moments. A friend um, who is a bit younger than me and who grew up in Austria, we were talking about books and she asked if I had ever read uh, The Giver. Do you know this oh, yeah. book? It was published, I think in 94, we found out. And I, I had never heard of it. It was beyond my you know, young adult reading days. I was being very old. Lo Lois Lowry, yeah. Yeah, I just read that last week. And that was the kind of book that on a rainy day just put me on the couch and don't talk to me, you know, you could fall into. And I mm, love so it. What was, so what was your aha moment with poetry? Like, did it come in formal education or did it come just like out in the world? Like what, what poetry like lit a rocket under you? Well, I mean, I think there's a, there's a double pronged answer, you know? Like when I was young and in school, we'd get these assignments like, oh, you could do a haiku instead or write a poem from the perspective of this historic character. I was like, that sounds easy. I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and Poetry, the easy way out. <laughs> <laughs> and I would get praise for it. So that made me feel good. So I was like, oh, let me do some more. Um, but I didn't really feel it as a driving passion then not until really a high school when there were a lot of feelings that needed dealing with and poetry for me felt like the place that gave me permission to have big dramatic feelings and then it became really a lifeline and then but and then but I don't think I really I don't think I really seriously considered trying to always write or be a poet in any way shape or form until until I took a workshop in college as a freshman and we had to revise and all of a sudden the logic side of my brain that likes puzzles and that likes order and surprise met the emotional part of my brain that likes beauty and horrificness yeah. and that playing that felt you know, the video game of the time was Tetris, which I also love. Just oh my god, I love Tetris. Yeah, that's so fun, and that's what revision of poetry started to feel like—like like all those little pieces just coming together and building something. And then I was, then I was, I was hooked. Yeah. Wow. So, is there a poet who stood for that for you? Like you were watching, you were reading a poem by Elizabeth Bishop, and you saw, oh, this is how it's done, or you saw a revision, nothing like that. No, I mean, I think it was being forced to do it to my own poems. Yeah. And even just seeing in a workshop, the teacher, she was a graduate student at the time, Shelley Withrow, she had the best accent. And um, being in and having her re-envision a poem, yeah. it felt like a superpower to me. Like, oh, what if you put the end at the beginning? I was like, oh my God, you just blew my mind. You can do that? Wow, that's great. Do you ever translate this? No. I was just wondering in the puzzle side of things, it sounds like that might be appealing, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I have, I have rough Spanish and rough Italian, but I don't have a depth 
of knowledge of another language. And yeah, I think, I think that energy, that puzzle solving energy in relation to poetry is maybe more what I put into broadsided and pairing the literary and visual and yeah. design in mind too. Um, yeah. So Liz, maybe like a final question. I love the way you talked about reading a sort of a whole book. So is there a book you want to leave us with? We sometimes call this the recallable book, which is basically like a book that, you know, if this conversation got you thinking, you know, what's the book you would pull off the shelf? You've actually given us a ton of different things, but, you know, I wondered if there's one book, you, you know, that hasn't come up that you wanted to go to bat for. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard to pick one. There are so many books I think are amazing, but a recent discovery for me a friend of mine, a former student, actually, she recommended that I read one book by this author, and I did, and it was amazing. And then I got another by Leanne Simpson. And this book of hers, This Accident of Being Lost. And she she is a First Nations writer from the greater Toronto area. But I think what I love about this book, and she's... She's a little bit punk rock. She's got a lot of attitude and swagger, and she also has a lot of self-questioning, and she's bringing in ideas of indigeneity and relationships. And there's so much complicated negotiation with lovers and friends and political moments and contemporary life. And how do you, how do you honestly live <laughs> contemporary life with an awareness of genocide and i i really have been loving her work hey liz can i put you on the spot you don't have to do this if you don't want to but can you read my favorite you know that my favorite poem by you that i know what because i know it so well is we all want to see a mammal can is there a chance you could read that you don't have to if you don't want to i could read it i could almost recite it but i can't quite um let me find it all right. Um, we all want to see a mammal. Squirrels and snowshoe hares don't count. Voles don't count. Something preferably that could do us harm. There's a long list. Bear, moose, wolf, wolverine. Even porcupine would do. The quills, the yellowed teeth and long claws. Beautiful here. Peaks and avens. Meltwater running its braided course. But we want to see a mammal. Our day, our lives incomplete without a mammal. The gaze of something unafraid that we're afraid of meeting ours before it runs off. Linnaeus was called indecent when he named them. Plenty of other commonalities, hair, live young, a proclivity to plot, but no, mammal, mammal, breasted and nippled and warm, warm, warm. Thank you, Liz. That was great. Wow. I love the um I love the tone you read that in. I never really realized quite how sardonic you uh it, it starts out, you know. You're, you're it's, like, it's it's one of a series of what I call my cranky naturalist poems. <laughs> yeah. I like it because I feel like you're you're channeling those folks up at the up at the side of the boat with their glasses, but you're kind of mocking them at the same time. That's that's like oh, and I am one at the same time. And you time. are one of them, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I want to see a mammal. I catch myself doing that stuff all the time. Like this walk is boring. If only I could. You know? Yeah. I know. No, no, you, you really capture it. Um, well, Liz, thank you so much. So I'm just going to read the credits now and say that Recall This Book is hosted by John Plotz and usually by Elizabeth Ferry with music by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, website design and social media by Kaliska Ross. And as you know, dear listeners, we do always want to hear from you with comments, criticism, suggestion for future episodes, and also um, with your own books in dark times. You can email us directly. You can tweet out at hashtag books in dark times or contact us via social media and our website. And so finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please, please, I'm begging you here. Be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. You might want to check out other books in dark time conversations and also conversations with such writers as Sadie Smith, Shishin Liu, and Samuel Delaney. So, um, Liz, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. This was fun. And thank you all for listening. <laughs>